Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerds Podcast number 551. I'm in San Diego. I'm at Comic-Con. I'm looking out my window and uh, just seeing scores of humans. Scores can be the only word to describe uh, how many people are wrapped around the convention center right now. Um, We're doing... I'm doing a bunch of panels. I'll have to do the Walking Dead panel in about an hour and a half, but then... uh, we're doing Nerds Podcast Live. Uh, there's a handful of tickets left for our 7.30 show at the Balboa Theater. Uh, if you go to Ticketmaster, you can get uh, tickets for that. Michael Rooker and Evangeline Lilly are guests on that. And Nerdist has a bunch of other panels running around Comic-Con. We have um, the main Nerdist uh, panel is at the Indigo Ballroom on Saturday, the 26th at uh, 2 p.m., about 2.30 p.m. Uh, in the Indigo Ballroom. And then, But uh, there's a podcast panel. So uh, Jonah's going to be on it, Matt, Sandra Doherty, Akron Blacker, Janet Varney, uh, Gil from The Mutant Season, Dave Ross. It's Saturday, 145 at the Horton Theater. Um, so go ahead and go see Nerdist people talk about things. I'm so excited. I got in, in kind of late yesterday, so I haven't really, I haven't been to the floor yet. I haven't been to the convention center, so um, just getting all geared up. <sighs> okay, okay, breathe, 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 breathe. Eli Roth who was a phenomenal guest. I didn't know him that, you know, I worked with Eli's brother, Gabe, at G4, and then also my shipmates. <laughs> oh, don't look that show up, whatever you do, please. Um, but uh, but uh, he's a super cool guy, and he is promoting the new season of Hemlock Grove, which is on Netflix now, and also the Green Inferno game, which is the official game based on the new movie The Green Inferno, which is coming out in September. Uh, it's available on Apple and, and Google Play. And uh, here we go, Nerds Podcast number 551 with Eli Roth. Now entering Nerdist.com. funny just to think about how there was a time where you could just flat out lie to people and they had no way of checking or it the uh, the arbuckle story fascinated me i was like i i was wanting to write something about it because like i everyone he hated being called fatty of course but like he and buster keaton used to do crazy pranks like like arbuckle is an amazing acrobat so he like there was there's one story they would go to hotels and like 
Arbuckle would hold Buster Keaton. Like Buster Keaton would do a handstand on Arbuckle's hands, and, like put paint on his shoes and walk, <laughs> and then like walk up the ceiling, and then like do footprints on the ceiling. And then they would watch the maids just be <laughs> completely confused. This is the twenties, so it was like what the. And then there was one guy that was a. Uh, like there was one studio head at Paramount or one of the studios that they used to torture. Like the fad in the twenties was having an amazing imported lawn. So they dressed up as like the lawn people and they went to his house with Vans and like they rolled up his lawn and went and took it away. So he came home and like his, his whole house was like just dirt. Just to fuck with people? Just to fuck with them. Because they were the great. biggest they were the biggest movie stars in the world, so they could do that kind of stuff. It was like when Jerry Lewis used to run around Paramount and like he would cut off people's ties. He'd walk and be like, Hey, how are you? And then cut off their tie. And they'd go, What? And then he would send them a new tie the next day. Like that was, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was I'm like, a piece of shit. <laughs> no, but this kills in France. No, but but Arbuckle and Keith. And there was one night where, like, where Keaton, they had, like, the, there was something where there was, like, some dinner party that Arbuckle or Keaton was having, like, one of them. And, like, for everyone at the studio, and they were, like, they had invited Buster Keaton to come to dinner. But Keaton dressed up as a server at the party. And he kept coming out and, like, spilling his food in Arbuckle. And Arbuckle, like, picked him up and, like, would throw him back <laughs> in the kitchen. He's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, sir. And then, like, he would come over and, like, be serving the food. And then he would trip and spill it over Arbuckle. Like, oh, all of his tuxedo oh, Arbuckle's like, how dare you? And when they do some, like, comedic punch, and, like, he would tumble back into the kitchen, like, I'm so sorry, until he finally, like, Picked up Keaton and physically threw him in the house. And then Keaton like went around and changed and came in a tuxedo. Was like, I'm so sorry, I'm late. What did I miss? <laughs> and everyone at the party was like, Oh my god, there was a server who was terrible. Like that was it. And then, but back then in L.A., they used to go to San Francisco to have like crazy parties. And it was actually Will Hayes who started the Hayes Code and all the censorship. Like you have to have one leg on the floor. Like oh, wow. before Will Hayes. Anything pre-Hayes Code, movies were a lot racier. And then people started saying, oh, it's outrageous what Hollywood's doing. And Will Hayes, like, he wanted to be, he wanted to be Attorney General of the United States. Like, he was a, like, I think he was, like, um, not mayor of San Francisco, but he was a, someone in, in, in politics in California. And so he implemented the Hayes Code. But what he did in the 20s was all these actors were going up to L.A. All these L.A. actors, like, their weekend getaway was San Francisco. So they would go up there and have, like, crazy opium parties. <laughs> and so... Arbuckle went to one of these parties and they invited this woman. Somehow he got invited to a huge party that was being thrown by this woman named Maud Delmont. And she was like the Heidi Fleiss of her day. Like, like Maud Delmont. Um, a very sexy name back then, by the way. Very, uh, by the way, Maud was yeah, the hot yeah. name. Maud Delmont was basically a pimp. And so she would bring in young starlets and fix them up with producers that wanted to be famous. So she had a lot of young starlets, but also a lot of prostitutes. And there was a, a woman, a starlet, this girl named Virginia Rapp, that was 26 years old. And she came, she came to the party and she had had an abortion that day. Like an illegal <laughs> that day, in the twenties. In the twenties, she which had, had some surprise, some kind of hand crank. Had had, and it was an. It was actually Arbuckle's party, and she was one of the girls, and she was drinking and partying, whatever, and she started to bleed out. So they put her in the bathtub, and then they like brought the ice, and basically they called. They, they were like Maud Delmont, like the woman had had an illegal abortion, so it was all the records were destroyed. Like they, there was like the doctors were like, no, we didn't give this girl an abortion when you talk because it was illegal, and. Basically, all of that part was covered up. So, Will, like the the, I think he was the prosecuting attorney uh, in San Francisco, was like, "We are going to make an example of Arbuckle," and he was acquitted. They they put him on trial for a year, 
And Buster Keaton was the, was the only person who testified in his defense. Now, did Buster Keaton yeah. come in as, like, one yeah. of the inmates and they did a video? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but, he came in. But, like, How could you arrest these But guys? basically, well, Arbuckle came from a really broken home and had a violent temper. And his dad was an alcoholic and used to beat him. And he just went into, like, a crazy, crazy depression for a year as they tried to nail him. And they put Maude Delmont, like, basically the star witness saying that it was Maude Delmont. And they're basically, she was a pimp and a drug dealer and was hiring. So, so did this Hayes guy, did, they, did, they, did he basically, like, have leverage on Maude Delmont and said, you know, you need to say these things or else? Well, I don't know if it was leverage or they, but, yeah, I, he must have had leverage on her. Because basically it was, it was you, we're going to make an example. We're stopping Hollywood <laughs> from ruining the morale of San Francisco. They can do all that stuff at Hollywood, but they can't come here to do it. Um, but it's, it's amazing that Hayes lost that trial. Um, it ruined Arbuckle's career. He was completely depressed. He never worked again. He, like, he drank himself to death, uh, completely depressed. But Hayes went on to impose that morality like to the world, like the Hayes Code, he got passed through, and suddenly, you, if you were, only could kiss on screen if you were married, you had to fade out if it was a sex scene. If one person was on the bed, they had to have. You could never have two people on a bed. Yeah, you always had beds. to have one foot on the ground at yeah. all times. Like if you look at it, happened one night. Like there, it's a post Hayes Code movie, and if you look at the movies that were just a year or two before it, they were way racier. Yeah, there was so, a, there was one uh, director I can't remember who or what movie it was, but they. Um, to get around that, he wanted to show the uh, intimacy between two people. So he had him uh, having a phone conversation, and then he did a split screen. So they're both on their own beds, but like um, they kind of are above the beds on two different shots, and they're right next to each other, and their hands are pretty much touching. It's so crazy. It's so it, and and it is it is sort of funny that when you're young, you think of like, oh, the old days, you couldn't get away with anything. It's like, no, 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 no. They were still, they were shooting stag films. Yeah, and it was still like there was still stuff, but yeah, it just, just this this one guy. And then what's an interesting connection? Well, it is sort of a loose connection, but um, so I, I did House of a Thousand Corpses. I remember that very well. Right. So we did that movie, and then um, you know we made the movie, and then as we were kind of getting to the end of it, Universal said, "Hey, Rob, we love the movie. Uh, here's more money to like make it crazier." So the ending of Corpses doesn't look like the rest of the film because he had all this money to make the ending and it was super violent and super fucked up and it was at a time when it's like oh you know like horror films what weren't gritty enough they the weren't time. everything was PG-13 everything was yeah. I was doing Cabin Fever you were, at least yeah. two months after but Rob and I were shooting almost at the exact same time it was the same idea so then what happens is I think that must have been around maybe Columbine maybe there, there was I think it, no, it was it was after Columbine. It was, there, it was but there was some, but there was some sort of a there was some sort of a shooting, and there was something really horrible. And so, basically, this this council of studio heads went to Washington, and they were like, "There's too much violence in film," and so corpses, which had been like high on their list, basically got kind of pushed to the side. It's it's no. amazing, you know. Yeah, it was. It, it, I think it was Columbine because uh, Bowling. It was it was one of those things. If that's how the studios are going to demonstrate, it's almost like they sacrificed the horror movie to protect the rest of the violence and all the. Other and then action. it wasn't until <laughs> Hostel. Hostel was the movie that then kind of came back and was like, no, horror films are going to be super, super fucked up. fucking yeah. violent. And, it, and then... Like, Unapologetic. They, and they just sort of needed that little bit of political kiss-ass time to yeah. pass. Um, so that's, that's, that's sort of a loose connection to the morality clause of... Well, like, no, and then in that the, case, I, it was a I, violent morality Well, of course. I, I've, I mean, that was one of the things that fascinated me about the Hayes Code of what is socially acceptable at the time of movies. And I remember... But you can also feel... It's really based. It's it's not. It's all bullshit. It's all grandstanding because it's not about what's socially acceptable. It's really about what are audiences still willing to pay and go see movies about. And 
you know, I remember after the Virginia Tech shooting in April 2007, they were like, ooh, hostile too. I was like, excuse me? They're like, Virginia Tech. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you're talking about like a horrible tragedy of like a, a mentally disturbed person who like, he did it because of the news. Like, he loved the Columbine kids. He wanted to be like them. And that kid, that was like a, an immigrant who, who just watched, like, how does this have anything to do with anything? And they're like, well... Nobody wants to see horror movies. I was like, you're just making that up. They're like, <laughs> we're going to open you against Pirates of the Caribbean 3 or 4 or whatever it was, oh, and right. Shrek 4. I was like, you're putting me out on June 8th? Like, why wouldn't you wait until, you know, October when people want, like, why open our movie at the beginning of summer when it's, like, grim and violence and gore? And they're like, no, that's going to be the best release date for it. Mm. And then, of course, they're like, see, nobody wants to go see horror movies. I was like, nobody wants to see horror movies maybe in the first weekend of summer <laughs> in June when you're opening against Shrek 4 and Johnny Depp. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? How does that have anything? And then they throw up our hands. They go, Virginia Tech. <laughs> I was like, this is, I don't even know what to say. This is completely nuts. Well, the, I mean, the, the whole thing about is it, it's always like, well, we have to pass blame on things publicly to then look like we're doing something of course. for people. And it was all, you know, yeah. and, and ultimately. And nobody wants to ban guns or look at the gun laws or any of that. So, no. like, God forbid. Or like forbid. you said, the news, which is the most violent fucking show on television. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. Or like, or by the way, no, you, you hear more, like, look at the thousands of years of killing specifically because of religion. If you look at the witch trials that all happened for 250 the years. Crusades. Where 300,000 people were killed because the Bible said, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And they're like, well... The Bible says we have to kill witches, and therefore, you, you know, and things like anthrax, where a cow's udders would bleed, you couldn't explain because they didn't understand what anthrax was. They're like, oh, Goody Sherman bewitched my cow. Let's, <laughs> let's burn her and take her property. Oh, it's convenient because we also get the property of every single person we kill. Oh, shit. So this works out really well for us. Um, I'm just glad that I finally got an explanation for my cow's bloody taste. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. But you, you never, no one was ever like, well, we got to ban the Bible because people know it's someone misusing it. So people go, no, it's not the Bible's fault. It's people misinterpreting it or using it for whatever well, they want. Well, people want to blame something external in a, rather in a, than in take a, responsibility. In a, in a world where some things have no explanation. But then also, and then also to sort of gain political power, and I don't mean specifically politics, but. But political in the sense of like um, you know power like hierarchies of power. So it could be film or or any industry of like this is the thing, and I'm gonna take it. You know, Joseph well, yeah. McCarthy or, or, or it, it, but the idea is like film's been around for a hundred years, and the idea that violence has been around for a hundred years is insane. It's right. something in human nature and human DNA. When people have a conflict, they solve it violently. That's what we're programmed to do. So that, like that's how animals behave. That's how humans behave. When people think they can get away, when people feel like they're on the side of right. They'll do anything. If they feel there's no ramifications, they'll do anything. If they think they can get away with it, they'll do it. So that, that's just what, that's what scares me. But it's always amazing when these you know, politicians grandstand as if they really care. But they're also the ones voting to send people off to war and for <laughs> yeah. gun laws and everything, which is it's completely nuts. Um, you, uh, do you, did you do a thing on the – was it the Discovery Channel? Yeah. About the Milgram experiments? Yeah. It was amazing. It was terrifying. We recreated the Milgram experiments for if, since the 50th year anniversary. Now, obviously, we did, Stanley Milgram was a scientist, for anyone who doesn't know, in 1962. Yale University is 27 years old. Creates this experiment to see if people would shock another person. So people were brought in off the street. And this, this, was, for the, this was to try to explain like, the Nazis. The Nazis. The, Why know, did, I, yeah. I thought it was following orders. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was only fo- How couldn't the Nazis have happened? I was only following orders. People think that it was something genetic or something evil or something political. But he was just showing that any average person could, would shock someone to death. So 
they, they're pushing switches where there's a recording. They, they basically, they're brought into a room, and they meet a man, and he's like, hi, he's like, you will be the tester, you will be the testee, you'll be receiving the shocks. Don't worry, they won't hurt. And they put the other guy in the room. So this person is left, and there's like a very, the, the way Milgram did it brilliantly, he put him behind him, he put him in a uniform, in a medical thing. So we rebuilt the room exactly, to the exact oh. specifications, with a group of people that have done this experiment before. So people came in to the identical experiment in 1962. Now, obviously, it was not in Connecticut. It was some, there were different variables, and he did thousands of people, and we did 30, but the results were identical. It was amazing. 62% of the people would shock someone to death if they felt there were no repercussions. And, and what was so terrifying was you watch them, and they flip a switch, and they hear the guy go, oh, stop, stop, please, please, stop, 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 stop. I, I don't want to do this. I want the experiment. And they, and they look back at the guy, and the, they go, what do I do? He goes, Please continue the experiment. It's like, and the, and the guy goes, no, but he's, he's screaming there. The guy's really hurt. He goes, he won't be hurt. Please continue the experiment. And then they're like, and they ask him a question. The guy gets it wrong. And they just flip the switch. And, goes, ah! and then like after a certain voltage, the guy stops responding. And he's like, and he asks him a question. Is it red, green, or yellow? Okay. All right. Because he like reads the questions. <laughs> oh, the guy answers God. them. It's like, and then, and then they keep switching it even after they don't hear anything. Oh. So we stopped the experiment and we'd at, come out and then the guys brought out and you watch the person. What was so amazing that I really didn't anticipate was you ask the people, why would you, and we asked them, you know, pop up with the cameras go, why would you shock someone if you knew they were getting hurt? And they'd say, one guy was like, well, that guy told me to. He said that he wasn't going to get hurt. I thought he wasn't getting hurt. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. And then another guy who just was flipping the switches like it was nothing goes, well, you saw me. I, I didn't want to flip the switch. I said, I'm not going to do it. I was trying to help him. I'm like, oh, I never wanted shit. to flip the switch. I hesitated there, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it until that guy yelled at me and said, you have to do it. And I, and I thought this is a big Let's expensive go to experiment. The oh, yeah, God. And it was amazing how people completely rewrite history to suit their own morality. Wow. So, they, so they felt better about themselves. But there was one guy, they, they actually left it on the cutting room floor because the guy's breakdown was so severe. He's like, when he realized he was capable of doing it, like he came to a realization going, I could do this to someone. I could actually, I would have killed someone. And I didn't think, I think I'm a good person. I've never, I'd never hurt anybody, but I, I do. And then one woman, we asked her like, why would you shock them to death? And she's like, if I didn't listen to my father, he beat me. And we're like, oh, okay. Oh. And she goes, I grew up, respect, I was taught you don't question authority. That if someone tells you to do something, you go, okay. And that was authority for me. And I learned that if I questioned my father, my father would beat me. And so you're like, it has nothing to do with whether she's talking. It's completely about people's relationships to authority. So what the, all, what the experiment ultimately determined was that uh, the Nazis were okay. Nazis were great. They were they're they're only, by the way, they were only following. <laughs> yeah, <they> were only <laughs> following. The Germans were okay. Says Donnie Donowitz, the bear Jew. Bear Jew. Bear Jew. You know, I see, I work out at a gym on La Brea. Yes, and, the, yeah, the, and, yeah. and your, fi- your my poster fucking is like up there. right. I see it. It's right near the pull-up bar. I see it three times a week. That's terrible. There, there you are up there. They got there the it. fucking baseball bat behind bat. your neck. Yeah. Did, yep. you, did you work out there or something? Yeah, yeah I did train there. I, tra- I was, I was, German, I trained at, I trained there and at uh, Crunch way back when. I remember that was. I had to put on forty pounds of muscle for that. Oh Jeez. shit! I just went crazy. I was, I was like, I'm gonna. Uh, Quentin told me not to because I don't think he wanted me to look that good on camera. He was like, I was like, yeah. I might do a couple of pull-ups here and there. And then he showed up. He's like, What the fuck happened to you? And um, you know, that was the idea was that nobody was going to look like, you know, Transformers or like a superhero. It wasn't a Marvel movie. It wasn't like Avengers. <laughs> it's literally like your Hebrew school class going on a killing spree. <laughs> and, and so that's like Quentin was actually mad that I bulked up 
for the role. But I, I knew I was like, fuck, man, I'm going to be next to Brad Pitt. Like, I better fucking yeah. bring it. I got to like at least, you know. I can't embarrass myself too badly when you're like next to the best looking guy in the world. Like I gotta look cool. Yeah, but you're also next to Sam Levine and Paul Russ, so you're well, yeah, really exactly. the balance is more it out. towards uh, well, the, well, the Brad. Uh, <laughs> well, the best was Quentin. I remember the first day in the lineup, like Sam Levine was there next to me, and he's like, he's like, dude, I fucking hooked you up, all right. He's like, look at these guys. He's like, I was like, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of Bear Jew and the Seven Cubs. These guys are short. He's like, I cast you with the shortest motherfuckers I could find. You look like a superhero you fucking owe me i was like okay 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 so, do you like do you like acting do you like sort of do you like kind of going like hey i don't have to be in control right now i i mean i do love it when it's a situation like that like you know obviously when you're i know you're a horror movie fan so you're doing house of a thousand corpses and there you are like covered in blood getting, it's you know, so much fun yeah it's the best when you're like covering getting your skull drilled in um but it but it was, it was amazing you're working with rob and in that awesome environment um, when you're working with friends like Alex Aju did Piranha 3D, asked mm-hmm. me to do a cameo, and that kind of stuff, I love it. And if my friend, I made a movie called Aftershock that I wrote with my friend Nicolas Lopez in Chile, and he directed it, and we wrote it and produced it. And it was a really, really fun time. But honestly, I love directing. And for me to give up, I feel like I've like fought so hard to get to the director's chair that to give that up for acting, it's got to be something fucking awesome. It would have to be Quentin Tarantino saying, do you want to be in this movie? It's going to be Quentin Tarantino going, do you want to be in a movie with Brad Pitt? Like, right. Oh, yes, right. What As opposed to what I, I call for. you and I go, hey, do you want to be in my student film? Student. Yeah. It pays yeah. nothing, and it shoots for eight weeks, yeah. and I just need you for 12 hours a day. But we have an in at Funny or Die. We think we can get it we up. Can yeah, get yeah, it yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. Can you bring your own wardrobe? No, and cool. Can like, you make I sandwiches? Obviously, I love all aspects, writing, producing, directing. It all started because in seventh grade, all we would do is like, hey, I think I figured out a way to chop someone's head off. And we'd be like, okay, let's get the video camera and we'd do a scene of like, you know, fucking shovel whacking or chainsaw, whatever it was. We were sitting there trying to think of, I would sit there and literally try to think of different deaths I could pull off and shooting with your friends. And sometimes you're in it and sometimes you're directing. Yeah. And I kind of always knew where to place the, I would like a sense of where I wanted to place the camera. Um, but it, it's really fun when I'm, when I'm acting. But, it's, but, I different, but I don't want to, I feel like the best use of my energy really is writing and directing. So is it, uh, the, when I watched, watching Rob direct Corpses made me realize that I did not want to be a director mm-hmm. just because of the, I mean, uh, I've, I've said this before on the podcast a bunch, but it, you're ultimately the last word for pretty much everything. Like if you're the guy that yeah. has to have all the answers. Yeah. No matter, everything. No matter what's what. going yeah. on. And I can't remember who was on that said that they just... They would just answer things like because you, you can't really seem like uh, I don't know. You just got to fucking answer. So they just learn to like. Well, just say say something. If it doesn't work, then try something else. You know. Oh yeah, a lot. I I I, I didn't realize. You know, I went to film school and I studied and watched <laughs> movies and did my shot list and I bought the laser disc of Taxi Driver so I could <laughs> listen <laughs> the to the audit criteria and yeah. commentary. I listened to every commentary. I had my thirty different sided CAV discs of Brazil so I could listen to Terry Gilliam. <laughs> <laughs> in the 160 minute cut you get up 40 you get like more exercise getting up and flipping the laser disc you know than at the gym and I thought I knew what I was doing and I realized that the three summers I spent from age 16, 17, 18 as a day camp counselor at Meadowbrook Day Camp dealing with a group of 35 10 and 11 year old boys was the single best training I had for me oh, wow, yeah. I had no idea that my skills as a babysitter earning extra cash around the neighborhood that was actually 
what directing was. I, I didn't, I couldn't have anticipated that. It's all like, look, a camp counselor, you're like, look, I know he got two cookies. I know he got an extra cookie, but look, I'm going to give you a cookie and it's a secret cookie. And you got, but you got to promise, like, you're going to come through for me on this one. That's how you have to okay, deal with okay. actors. Like, you have to I promise some secret cookies. I know yeah. he's sitting in your chair, but like, I'm going to let you sit in my chair. And that's the way cool. You don't want to sit in that chair anyways. My, this chair over here is the cool chair, but it's got to be like our little secret. And you do this favor for, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah cool, cool. So you're, the, you're like the cool chair guy, See, right? Yeah, you don't care about that. That's chair. nice to hear that that's your directing style because I think I'd be like because fuck you that's why he gets another cookie and you should shut up you, you know should what? shut up about it guess how well that works <laughs> that doesn't work well at all fuck you no you're right take. They're like, but actors do shit like I was amazed so actors could be really good friends and then I saw um, on one set at, at, uh, like a girl was like giving the wrong off camera lines to fuck up the other one on camera and I was no. like what are you doing like She's like, I'm so sorry. I was like, no, the line is this, this, this. And she goes, that's what I said. And I was like, no, 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 you said this. And like the other girl who was on camera was like, she's prompting me wrong to add an extra the or an and, like fucking up my deliveries, fucking up my punching. She has a line in her head and she can't deliver it the way because she's now got to fix the line to match the question that was asked. And the other girl's like, no, that's what I said. And I was like, oh my God, I realized. And then she goes, she's like, she's fucking me up because she wants me to be worse than her. And she was right. <laughs> I watched the dailies and I could see it. Then you turn the camera on and the girl was off camera, got the lines perfectly. But whenever she was off camera, she would screw them up. And I realized she was fucking with it. So suddenly now you have to police that. And I would just yell, like, say it again, say it again. So, like, my direction and take was, like, do it again, do it again, do it. And so I walked over with, like, the lines. And so I, like, sent her home. And I read the off-camera stuff. Because, like, you just – and you're thinking, like, this is directing. This is exactly what it is. You're not – it's not about the framing or the shots or the mise-en-scene or the environment. It's it's taking a very insecure person and stopping them from completely fucking ruining your movie. And actors, as as a bunch on the whole, are very insecure, and you oh, have yeah. to deal with them in a very like respectful way. And you've got to make them feel comfortable, and you got to be like, you look good, and everyone's going to look good, and don't worry, I know. And, but but you put them, they out position each other like they're playing chess. Like you, it's almost like you turn around and they've reshuffled wherever you stage That's so them. So crazy because I know. I mean, I understand the I, the concept of insecurity, and I understand. I mean, like, I, of course, I'm insecure about stuff, but I, I've never been, like, aggressively insecure and as in, like, my insecurity is more like, are you sure that was okay? Because I don't, yeah, I can't I tell. No, 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 As opposed to, like, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to snooker someone yeah, out of But you of also, a- like, create your own thing. Like, you're someone with a lot of ideas and a lot of interests and a lot <laughs> of different, but, no, but, no, but it's true. Like, you're not, like... Oh my! But the, but you're not thinking like if I don't look good in this scene, this is my audition for this movie, and if I don't get more here, then I'm not going to get cast. And they they operate from a place of fear. I would fucking hate just being a just being an actor. Like only doing that to me sounds so fucking terrifying. It's horrible. They, they, that's why they're all nuts. But <laughs> lovely people, but nuts. No, they, but but who is it? It's Christoph Waltz. They're saying there are no small parts. There are only small actors, and that any actor, if you look at Christopher Walken in Pulp Fiction, or you look at you know, the way Michael Fassbender comes in in Glorious Bastards. It's yeah. not until chapter four. It's on you're like, whoa, what the fucking movie? This guy just took over the movie. Because yeah. he's so good. He's so focused. He's so intense. It doesn't matter if he has one line in a scene. He's just, he's in it. And you can see where other actors are. I've had it too. Like in every movie, there's, there's someone that they do this thing where when they talk, they will step in front of another oh, actor. That fucking sucks. Because they know the focus puller has to pull the focus to them. It's called pulling focus. The actors will 
pull focus. And I go, you got to keep back. And they go, yeah, but they try to get they go, yeah, but naturally, if I was talking, I would take a step towards them. I, mean, I go, if I, I know. trying to get the camera to focus on me, I'd get in front of it. Yeah, exactly. and I, would, yeah, yeah. I know. That's what I would do in life, man. Exactly. That's what they say. They're like, yeah, but I would, or they do the other thing where an actor will, when another actor is on camera, off camera, they stick their hand in their face or they grab them and put their head in their shoulder. So oh, as if like, God. you're now subservient to me, like the way dogs mount each other. Oh, and you sit God. there and the crazy thing is having been an actor in Bastards and sort of watching it, I'd see it from the makeup chair on where I was in the makeup chair and there'd be like someone who's like, well, why are you taking so much time? You're, you're fine. You're a guy. You just need dirt or your hair. Like, well, I was like, okay, like Jesus. I get it. I'm not like trying to get ma- extra makeup time, but it starts with that level of if I don't have my time in the chair, I'm not going to look pretty. If I'm not going to look pretty, <laughs> Quentin's not going to put the camera on me because he's going to be mad. But like, it's all, uh, or then the shots look pretty. I'm not going to get that modeling campaign. Like it's that level of nut. Like, so, so, and it doesn't fucking matter. Some they type fucking of horrifying. Some, some, horrifying. Some, some narcissistic person with borderline personality disorder or just read the art of war. Yeah. They're like, I have to apply these. It I is. Just, I just read the 48 laws of power and I yeah. need to. It's no, it is that. And it just goes through every level of to the point where because I, I noticed it on Cabin Fever, my first movie, I'm watching it and I was like, why is this one actor? It'd be a wide shot. I've set up a beautiful fucking wide shot with all five characters. And this one actor was like talking on his cell phone and fucking up the take, or he would twitch and fiddle, like Moving his hands, scratching his ears, he'd be like, another actor would talk, <laughs> like fidgeting, fidgeting with like a child that's in a car that you tell your child to sit still, and the kid's like picking up things and rattling and making noise, and you're like, stop it, just stop for a second. And I go, now I can't do that, fuck it, okay, just put the camera, and, and the other actor's like, don't do it, don't do it. I'm like, why? They're like, he wants you to film him in single. <laughs> and I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> because what happened was, <laughs> he fucked up the wide takes, and I was like, god damn it, all right, well, let's, we got the wides, but let's, let's just get this one shot, because I didn't have his line. I was like, I need this line, and let's just put the camera on him, and he was brilliant. Ugh. Something came out of him, and was like, wow, where the fuck was that guy in the wide shot? And I realized he would only anytime there was another actor in the frame, he, he would torpedo the scene so you had to film him in single so he, as a result, would get more close. Do you think he was doing that consciously or do you think it was just... Everything is conscious. I don't know if it's so ingrained in him and it's subconscious, but the actors are so aware of it. There's no way he was doing that by accident. Because you, I would sit there with my editor afterwards when you're looking at it two months later and the editor was like this guy is the worst actor and we cut him and he's like no he's actually great if we if we, if we got over our anger at him and cut him in close up it's like yeah the movie works oh, wow. and everyone's like I remember the other actors watching the movie and he did his thing close up and got a huge laugh and they're like you fucker <laughs> he fucked us we were so cool it's and even you gave worse that close that he was up. good because you're like fuck yeah. it's, it's the worst yeah and then like it was great one of the newspapers like the New York Times or something said he was amazing and they were like god damn it he was a fucking ass you don't even know no. But do you know what the worst? But the thing is, actors like that, their reputations catch up with them so fast that they can get away with that one or two movies, and then unless they're a big star, like obviously big stars do whatever they want. But actors that are just starting out, like other directors, because on the next person, this what this is how short they it's such short term ball. They don't think the next director that casts them, if they're not a big name, they're going to call me and go, "How were they?" How was he? How was she? Don't shoot him wide. And I'm going to go, okay, but just, you want to cast them? This is what you're in for. And sometimes they'll go, I can handle that. Or other times they're like, fuck, forget it. And I'm like, you know, they're like, it's between him and one other person who is. And if someone else has a great reputation, if someone's a lesser actor with a very good reputation, I'll take the lesser actor. Well, that's why when you see people continually pop up in things and 
they haven't. It's not like you know they haven't really hit it, but they work a lot. I think you kind of start to you can assume like they're probably really cool user friendly because people just user want friendly. to they come in and do their job and they're like they're it's nice also, and they go yeah, home. But it's so. also what you realize is that there's so much money being spent. I mean, look, Cabin Fever was a million and a half dollars, but at the time that was like more money than I'd ever amassed for anything in my life. It was people put up their houses for the money. It was financed by private people. It was independent. It was a lot of fucking money, and one person can actually sink the ship if someone is. Fucking it up. Like, you don't, you have time for one or two takes. You're on an indie, low budget, independent movie. Once you're three or four days into shooting, you've gone beyond the point of fireability. Like, you can't fire anyone now because you can't go, you don't have the money to go. If it's day, if it's day one, you can fire someone and that you can save. But they wait until about day six and that's when they like turn into a pumpkin and you see who they really are because they know that's when the actors know they fucking got you by the balls because you can't you do not have the money to fire them. And that's when they start getting problematic or they start outside or they're just divas just or they're like dicks. To be nice. It's all I want. I'm just like, what? but why am I the bad guy? You were going to work at the Gap folding clothes and I'm giving, I'm giving you money to be funny. Why are you hassling? Well, it's because, all their insecurity. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean it's the same things that it's the same things that make performers good. Can, like the the yes. downsides of like the the, the 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 negative sides of that also can are, are you know it's like sometimes you'll see someone really brilliant and you find out they're super crazy and you go you know I don't think I'd want to be that brilliant if I had to be, that, had to yeah. be that crazy yeah. no, to go true. along to go along with it. I don't think you need that level of both because like with I would say Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards, you he was doing Aldo like he was really trying to do like a just had a very like amazing take on the character with the chin and the knife and the gestures like he was so dialed in and he had just had twins and the like circus of the paparazzi you'd never know he was there he was happy to work he was nice he was cool and i kept thinking like is this an act like when's it gonna when's this guy gonna snap and it just never happened like he was just so happy to be there and giving it his all and like talking to everybody like friendly like there was not literally not a negative thing and i was like you know what fuck everybody you don't have like that guy's like you i would you look at gypsy you look at floyd you look at all the different characters like that guy's fucking brilliant and he He's just nice and easy, and there's no problems. There's no, like, nothing that we saw. And so when I see the people, it's interesting, because the director of Cannibal Holocaust, Roger Deodato, I gave him a cameo in Hostel too, and we were talking about problematic actors. And he said something amazing that I, it's like, I think of this all the time. He's like, big star, no problem. Beginner actor, no problem. Mid-range. He goes, middle actor that yeah. thinks they're a big actor is most problem fucking oh, wow. pain your ass, ruin your yeah, because they life. have enough notoriety that they feel a little power dangerous. hungry, but they but they're so not insecure. as so they gotta kind of peacock a little yep. bit yeah. all the time. And everything's about insecurity and what number are they on the call sheet. And but you know it's weird. I just um, directed a film with Keanu Reeves, and he it was my first time directing like a big major was that star. knock 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 knock. knock. Yeah, yeah, we just wrapped. I'm editing now. The fucking coolest guy. Like we, I mean that guy. And you think about it, like that guy's been famous since the eighties. Like that guy's been famous since I was in high school. Like I remember I was in high school when Bill and Ted's came out, and it was like that guy has been famous for so long in so many decades. And you, and we talk about the Nancy Myers movie, Someone's Got to Give, or is yeah. you know, or is the Doctor, or obviously making neo jokes or anything like he. You know, we took Point Break nonstop, like making Point Break references. He was just so cool, so happy to be. And everyone had said, Keanu's great, you're going to love him. And like, we were shooting nights, and it was very intense. It's a thrill. It's not a horror movie, but it's like he goes through, like, insane stuff in the movie. To the point where one night I completely blew his voice out. I felt really, really bad, but he was just giving it his all. Just Whoa. so happy to be. He was like, Whoa. Oh, by the way, all the time. <laughs> 
I was like, dude, you are a, like, I remember, like, the day we were rehearsing, and I looked, and I was like, where's Keanu? And he was, like, lying on the grass, like, face down, like, with a cigarette in his mouth. And I was like, you are a fucking walking meme generator. Do you even, <laughs> do you even know what a meme generator you are? And he, like, like kind of laughs and has, like, a sip of his Coke and he's a drag like, of the cigarette. He's, like, 52 years old now or something, right? He's like, yeah, he's, like, yeah. and he's in fucking awesome shape. Like, his skin, like, he looks amazing. He was so... So funny. No, he does have nice you skin. Sit there. He has nice skin, okay? No, he's very nice skin. And, like, because you can shoot him in close-up. Someone who doesn't, because you can't film him. But, like, you look at him like, fuck, man, we should all look that good when we're that age. Like, you know, he's, he, and he was, and you go, that's why this guy has been in it for so long. He's seen everything. He has been the biggest, he's still one of the biggest movie stars in the world, but he's had that moment where he was, like, it in the biggest franchise. Yeah. And he just fucking wants to work, and he's great. And you're like, that's, that's all you can hope for. I was at a party probably 10 years ago, and he was, I never forget this, because he was, uh, he was sitting on a chair, like, outside, just, just kind of sitting there, hanging out. Seemed totally normal. And then I, I remember, like, just some random girl walked up to him, and I didn't get the sense that they were together, but she just walked up and got in his lap and just started making out with him. And he just went with it. I was like, how does that life work? The best. I, and it, and it, yeah. he just, it, but he just, but it, it what it, he just kind of seemed like, yeah, whatever, you know, like I'll just sort of. He's, not he, that that's a hard. I thing bet to that happens with. to Alex Winter too. All the time. Yeah, all the time. All the time. Well, he was. I mean, he's still buddies with Alex Winter. Yeah, that's still, really like, cool. It's great. They're like, you know, they're going to do. Uh, they talk about Bill and Ted's three. Like, it's funny. He's really, really funny. And we joke all the time. Like all the time, we would just tease him about sad Keanu. Or are you sad? Keanu? <laughs> and he's aware of it, right? Oh, we fully. But like the best was showing him iPhones and Instagrams and stuff. Like he's he's kind of disconnected. Like he's sort of. We're like Neo doesn't know how to use the freaking iPhone. Well, I feel like, like he did an AMA, like, and I think he wrote, "Okay, guys, here you go." Whoa! And then he, I think he typed "Whoa" for. Oh everyone. no, he does it. Like we we would, you know, like the, like uh, we were joking. Us in the in the movie, he plays an architect, and we sat there for probably two hours trying to go through the script to think of a conceivable way that he could scream his profession. So it's like in all the great, I was like, I need to be on the highlight reel of Keanu Reeves screaming like, I am an FBI agent. I'm a lawyer. That's what I do. I'm a lawyer. I win. And we were like, so we just like, I am an architect. Like all the time, right before. He was so fucking funny. Like oh, he shit. just, we're like, God, we got it. He's like, oh man, I got to do that. We got it. Yeah, we got it. He's like, it's right. I do scream my profession and all those movies. And then like all the, whatever. It was the first time we've ever cast him as a dad. So it was the first time he's ever had kids in a movie, and they were like aliens. And like the first day, I cast these. We were shooting in Chile, but I found it's supposed to be Los Angeles, and I found these two American Jewish kids, so like a girl and a boy, that were so funny. And they like, it, <laughs> um, they made me macaroons. It was Passover. It was so fun. Like I loved it. They were great, and they would just fuck with him and they'd be like look at your hair who are you my mom said you're famous I've never heard of you Jesus. what do you like, like like can you dodge a bullet like they were sitting on his lap and he's like he would look at me going what the fuck do I do with these things it's <laughs> like dude and I was like you're on your own man and like I threw like a puppy in so he's sitting there with, like, he has like a puppy in one hand and like an eight year old mo- and he looks at me like you motherfucker like how am I supposed to like and then, and then in one take the girl and the girl was like no you don't say that line no you sit over here he's like no I fucking got it alright like it's in the dailies and the girl's like I got like we we were laughing so hard. Like the first day, I was like, "You can't. You got to say fudging. Keanu can't can't swear around the kitties." What? What? Fuck! Oh, he did that. Man. Like the first, he's like, "Oh fuck!" And then he was like, "But he was great. He really it took him two seconds, and he was super into it." My fa- I think my favorite Keanu Reeves performance, uh, Parenthood. Oh yeah, that, that scene with Martha. Was it Martha, Martha Plimpton? Martha yeah. Plimpton. But there's that. There's that one scene. I mean, he's basically playing. Um, he's basically playing Ted. 
Yeah. Yeah. And um, he, but then there's that one scene where he kind of opens up to Diane Weiss and he's like, you know, I used to wake up every day with a guy flicking cigarettes at my face and he's like, you know, you need a license for hunting. You need a license to fish. You need a license to drive a car, but don't let any asshole be a dad. Like, it's this really great scene and then he kind of steps out and he's like, huh. Yeah. <laughs> it was such a fucking great, he was so good in that he's movie. Good. He's a yeah. really good actor and what, and what I could see is like, he just, he's great. Like, he has it. He has the range. I mean, Knock Knock, I wanted to show like a real range with him. Um, but it's, it's just, just loosening him up, getting him to laugh and he's, and he was great. He was, but he's one of those guys that, you know, speaking of troublesome actors where you see a guy like, how is it that Keanu Reeves, Brad, these people are just the easiest people to work with. They love it. They're so happy to be there. They give you everything. They want it to be great. They're nice to everybody. Like even in restaurants, like Keanu Reeves and Chili, it was like nuts. It was like the, the Beatles. They, they couldn't believe Neo was there. And he took photos with every single person. Oh, wow. In any restaurant setting, he was just like... It's just easy. It's like, well, you know, some, it's really cool. some people are wired that way, and some people appreciate. I mean, it's you know, I, I think some people do it because they enjoy the process and they like the craft of it, and other people just want to fill a hole that they have in them. Yes, but but all the external stuff doesn't fill the hole. And then they get more and more frustrated because they're like, why is this ever-widening hole not being filled with fame and riches? And, yeah. and then they get crazy. No, it's weird. Ho- Hollywood, I tr- people, because I grew up in Boston, so my friends are like, dude, what it's like out there in fucking Hollywood? <laughs> the fuck, dude? And I'm like, well, guys. Um, <laughs> you talk funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what happened? I tell them, like, Hollywood is, like, the continuation of high school. It's almost like the studio heads are, like, the principals, like, the, the, I was like, the, the the quarterbacks are like the movie stars wait, and the wait, young act you know they're, they're, like the movie stars are like the quarterbacks like the popular jocks and like the new girls like the hot young actresses yes. are like the hot freshmen that just sort of leapfrog right to the popular crowd <laughs> and like writers are like the goalies and like utility players on teams that like aren't first choice <laughs> to hang out with the stars but stars sort of know they need them to win so they're like allowed to go to parties but like the directors are like the cool guys that are friends with the jocks. They're not the top athletes, but they have cool cars. So they'll be like, they get like popularity by association. Mm-hmm. And every, and like the freshman girls know that like the jock is friend, that that guy with the car is friends with that jock. So they're, it's like okay to be seen with them, like the directors. But it's like a whole class system. It's the exact same fucking behavior like, as like, high school. Like, I like the studio heads as the principal. Uh, market research has dictated that we're going to have our gratin potatoes. Because yeah. yeah. exactly. everything's, everything's so, what are we going to say? I think and comedians are the AV club kids, I guess. Oh, right? yeah. for sure. The comedians yeah. are the AV They kind of yeah. like, we're, we're better. We don't want to be yeah, part yeah. of that. We're better than that. We got our own thing going on. We're, we gotta sure have... Everyone knows we don't want to be part of that. Yeah, yeah. It's just, so we have sure our own hierarchy. You hear what I said? We don't want to, we just yeah. want to make sure that you know that we don't want to be part of that. I just want you guys to know we don't care because none of this matters in four years. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter. Do you know what's going to matter? This yeah. Buster Keaton movie I'm showing right now. Steamboat Bill Jr. And then Evil. Benny and June. I don't know why I just thought of... Um, wow. Like, Jeremiah Chechik. Well, the, uh, it's, it's, it was the, the Johnny Depp as uh, Buster Keaton. Yeah, Johnny Depp, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Someone, uh, I can't remember if that movie holds up or not yet, but someone was, someone was like, what's Benny and June? And I, and I said, I remember watching it in the 90s, but I can't remember... At the time, I was like... Oh yeah, I think this is a good movie, but I can't remember if I th- actually thought it was a good movie or if it was just uh, Johnny Depp and Mary Stuart Masterson uh, pretending to have uh, mental problems. 
I can't. Yeah, I, can't I, I don't remember anything about Barry, Benny and June. I just remember he's dancing remember, with the rolls on the forks, and yeah. he's reading the art of. He's reading about Buster. There King. was a '90s period of where I have to admit that I bailed on Johnny Depp. I was like, should I? Do? I remember like eleven dollars. Get the fuck out yeah. of this room. Like eleven dollars. Like I was the biggest Depp supporter. Like not from Jump Street, but right from Cry Baby and Edward Scissorhands. Like great. I love. I thought it was cool that he only Nightmare worked with Timber. Then I was like, do I really want to see Dead Man? Right. And then someone's like, hey, I got a copy of The Brave. I was like, they're really like, wow. I was like, I'm, I'm kind of giving up. Were you in the Depp train now? Are you back in the Depp train? Oh, I'm fr- I've, I mean, now I appreciate it. But at the time, when, it, when you're like, you know, right out of college, like $10 is a lot of money to spend on a movie. So yeah. like, you have to spend subway fare to get there. Yeah. So that really was it. Like, it wasn't, it was like, do I want to use all the money that I've saved up? Is this the movie? You could kind of pick one movie a weekend. Or you go into like Starship Troopers and then just movie hop into I Know What You Did Last Summer. <laughs> and then like, see like, 17 different movies. In I which I, by the way, I, I love Starship great. Troopers too. I saw it twice that day. I remember back for the 10 o'clock. I was like, let's go yeah. see this movie again. Um, but I remember now I can't movie hop anymore. That's the only downside to like sort of being known as a director is the people, the ushers are like, wait, are you actually yeah. skipping, paying $10? Yeah, but can't, can't you just play money? Like, just let me do it. I just want to do it. No, this is my process. Like, yeah. can't you be arty about it in some way that they would allow? Yeah, that works really well. I'll, ca- I'll cast yeah, you in something. I chop people's heads off. This is my process. Hey, man. <laughs> and, 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 it's you know, my process. You just do this to their face? Like, yeah. just do I do that one. Square hand. We're like, okay. Are you gonna put me in a movie? You you be in a movie? Maybe I will if I get to hop line. into this that's other. Cool. Can you let me into How to Train Dragon Two for yeah. free, dude? Twenty bucks cool? is twenty bucks, right? Yeah, I mean, that's all I was fucking. So what is it? Just kind of going back to something you said earlier, right? Because there, I have the comedy. I know, that, like, there are comedy equivalents of the fast bender. Someone who, you know, and and for me, it was you know, it was like uh, Kristen Wiig or Will Ferrell, just like someone. No matter where they are on the screen, you just immediately go, Meh. yep, and they, and they just. They, without literally pulling focus, just pull focus because of just because of some quality about them. Yeah. What do you think that kind of magnetic quality that is? That X factor. That it's, it's hard to explain, but there are some actors that have it, and you just... And there's the actors that are pains in the ass, and then people warn you, no, this person's going to be a fucking nightmare, and you're like, I don't care, because when you... It's really someone that's interesting that makes you go, what are they going to do next? And mm-hmm. I think that more than being good-looking or being funny, they, they have all of that. But there is... Like, I remember Giuseppe Andrews, in, who's not a big star at all. Like, he was in Cabin Fever. He played Deputy Winston. And he just... The way... Yeah, man. Like, he had a look in his eye. He had something about him. He'd been in Detroit Rock City. The people come out of the movie, and they're like, that guy... Like, I love that guy. And I remember there was something with Caleb Landry Jones when we were making The Last Exorcism. They were like, this, this kid came in. He'd been on Friday Night Lights. Um... But there was just something about Caleb that no matter what he did in any scene, it was a subtle glance. You couldn't take your eyes off him. And after the screenings, people were like, we love Ashley Bell. We love it. But like, who was that kid who played the brother? And he got, went on to, he played Banshee in X-Men. Like, he's great. Like, but, but there are those people that just have that thing about them that no matter what they do, they're like absolutely hypnotic on screen. And then the same goes for other people that no matter how beautiful or interesting, like they're just fucking boring. (laughs) And you just are like, get me, like I can't stand watching this person. It's not that I hate their face or anything. I just could give a fuck about what they're going to say next. (laughs) I just don't care. Yeah, I think think probably some of it must have to do with People who are just nat. I think we're. I think we gravitate toward people who just seem comfortable with themselves in a situation because, you know, I think um, just as a species, when someone else seems to have answers that you don't have, you're just like, what do they know that what I do don't they know? know? Exactly. They must yeah. know. They seem like they know something. <laughs> and they also do like the obviously the comics do a way of like putting the audience just identifies them and puts themselves like I get embarrassed like that person. I get they sort of get humiliated for us. Right, and they yeah. do the awkward thing that it's like, oh, that's what I would do. I'm too embarrassed to admit it, but I'm that. 
nervous and stupid. I don't really actually know what that thing is either, and I would completely pretend to, and I get drunk on airplanes or whatever they, whatever they do. But no, that's like no, it's true. Like you're watching them, and you can oddly identify with that like embarrassing, like horribly humiliating situation where you just spiral. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some actors that just like it was weird because I, I just rewatched Tropic Thunder, oh, which so I loved when good. I saw it, and I was like, this is a movie. Like, why isn't this in the Anchorman? Why isn't this in like the Blazing Saddles pantheon? I think like, it was too inside. Like I, I think that, but I don't know. I mean, I know it was a big hit, but like that movie is a fucking masterpiece. And Robert yeah. Downey Jr. in that film, I was like, it's, it's inexplicable. I was like, if he never does anything else in his career, he will have given us that I can, performance. I can tell yeah. you, I can it's tell just you. the single greatest thing. I, 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 I saw Tropic Thunder twice. I saw it in Los Angeles, and I saw it in Memphis, and I went to visit my family. And the experience of seeing that movie in those two different audiences was was like polar opposites because in, in LA people picked up on all the the jokes about the tropes of action films and actors and direct, like just they they got all of the stuff that Ben yeah. was doing and in Memphis I I watched the audience they laughed in completely different places and didn't seem to grasp like what the overall intended tone and kind of message yeah. of the movie well, people, was people genuinely generally i've found could give a shit about movies about about movie stars like they <laughs> yeah. really don't like you know if it's funny people like people are just like why would i want to i think how can i think like comedies of the last 20 years. Yeah. yeah that was amazing i like it's it was just so good but that's that's one of those examples where you're like it's he's just fucking hypnotic you can't how did he know that how did you know he was going to be that brilliant in that it's just yeah. so good he is i mean i love He's just a guy. I just love. I lo- I don't love that he went through what he went through. I feel bad. Of that, course, you know, that he had, you know, like addiction is a fucking is not a thing that you would wish upon anyone. But but I mean, what a pull the out of phoenix a phoenix yeah. rose yeah. out of the ashes, yeah. well, reborn. This when when John Favreau when John Favreau was on, it was like I mean. People just think of Iron Man as like, oh, Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man. It's like, mm. yeah, he was unemployable before that yeah. movie. Like, he's the waking insurance. up in like, strangers' houses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, it's insane. And he just totally. And I remember when. I mean, I he's a guy actually that whenever he was in a movie, like he when he was in Back to School, and I fucking loved him in that movie. Yep. He just always had weird science. We, yeah. He, weird science. He just always had a slightly. A take that on something that I just never saw coming. I know. Do you know what I've? I don't know if you noticed this. Like I l- obviously love directors. I'm a director file. I fucking hate directors' cuts of comedies. It's like <laughs> really? I think the directors' cuts of comedies are the most boring. Like it's almost like they think. Like if there's a horror movie and stuff's been cut out, I'll watch the director's cut, see the extra gore, or sometimes like Apocalypse Now, I'll watch it. But a lot of the times, I've yet to find an example like. Like, no one ever thought, like, thought, oh, wow, that joke's so funny, it needs to be longer. You know, (laughs) like, when you watch a comedy, and it's tight and funny, and you're laughing the whole time, I like watching the additional scenes that were cut. But when I'm watching the director's cut of a comedy, I'm always inevitably like, why don't they have have the version of the theatrical? I have a theory on this. It's just too long, it's too slow, it doesn't make it funnier. My theory on this, from a joke writing standpoint, is that the jokes that make me, that I write that make me laugh the most rarely ever work and i think the reason is is because they're too inside my own head yep. and the rest of the world and audience lacks the context of what's in my head of course and so i find that just like we use it like the and the audience the live audience will sort of tell you like too long you know like so you sort of get yep. you, like they yeah. help you edit but in your own head 
certain things are funnier because you just you you and I, I think it might be the same thing in their head that's like oh no but this is funnier because of all this context that you don't have no, that's in my head I've talked to a lot of people that were like I can't like they get mad at iTunes because they're like I can't watch it like because all my favorite comedies they only have the unrated director's cut thinking that people oh there's more gross out there's more ju- more is better and it, and it just fucking bores me to tears and you watch and you're like mm. It's kind of long. It's not as funny as I thought. And then I like you go back to the theatrical cut of the comedy, and it's it's always seems to work better. You There's know, a couple. And like, prove me wrong. I mean, I've like I really like it's. I've made a study of this. Well, I mean, it's not a flat out comedy, but the uh, the director's cut of that thing you do is a like a way better movie. But it has a lot more like a lot more jokes. A lot like everything takes its time a little better, and it makes it everything. Uh, you, you, like, but that you was like more of a drama. I mean, that was yeah, like you kinda, know, yeah. it was a comedy, but it was yeah. done as like you know, uh, Kingpin. Period. The director's cut. Of okay, Kingpin. good to know. Yeah, is it way better? Is it better? It's, it's, there's there's like little things throughout it that you didn't. Yeah, that are just fantastic. Like okay, more more. You know, some of them aren't just like like some of them are just added scenes that like kind of like nail the characters that much better. So when everything gets paid off a lot better when you're watching. To, you know, Interesting. The yeah. All right. Well, it's good to know. Can we ask? Can we just for a quick sec give a shout out to your brother Gabe? Yes, you guys work together on I, shipmates. I, not only do we work together on shipmates, we worked date. We worked together. Yeah, we worked together on boat date. Uh, no, no, no. That was you've that been was, at sea with my brother Gabe. That's I never impressive. went on any of the cruises. Oh, I never went on any of the cruises. <laughs> yeah, you know because it was we we were. Sh- I, I I don't know why I'm laughing about this. We, uh, September 11th happened right in the middle of our production. Mm-hmm. Um, so the terrorists won, uh, but because uh, <laughs> the shipmates. But and I, so I was just too afraid to travel at the time, and I didn't. They were still sending out, going like making cruises during that. There, during a that scary time, time to fight. Yeah, it was, very, it was a very I mean, time to shoot cabin fever, and people were like, "Oh, there's going to be an anthrax attack." Did, did, every yeah, fucking every like, day yeah. in New York at that time, there was some, and that's the, where we did. That's where we did the show, and so I just, I never wanted to travel, so I just didn't go on any of the cruises. But, but you know what, Gabe had said about the, the cruise, he was like, you know, you, you didn't really, it's better you that you that didn't. Yeah. But then he, but it's then like a traveling toilet. We also worked together at G4. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I feel like I just saw him on this lot like a month ago. Yeah, he's been so- cutting stuff, producing stuff for National Geographic. Yeah. show from there. But, yes. uh, so Colby, shout out yeah. to Gabe Roth, who yes, I, so I always enjoyed working uh, with. Are you, what, what are you, so you just finished Knock Knock. And Hemlock Grove. Just and here, Hemlock Grove. We're so excited. Now that was a different, like, that was a completely different experience working with Netflix. They're amazing. And it's really I remember two years ago when we went out with a, the book, Brian, Brian McGreevy's novel, and we went out with a pitch of what the TV show would be. And we started meeting with networks, and Netflix actually came to me because they said, well, we have a show with David Fincher, and we have one with Genji Cohen, and we'd like one with you. And I'm like, well, <laughs> these little old me, oh, and just David and Genji. Am I being lumped in with these hacks <laughs> again? <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, soil my reputation if you must, but I shall. And... They basically said, you know, we can do a show with no commercial breaks, with all the violence you want, and we can do it, tell the story, at almost like a 13-hour movie, and just drop it all at once, and we'll do it in all of our Netflix territories. So we said, why not? Like, let's, let's do it. Obviously, if it's good enough for David Fincher, good enough for me. Um, <laughs> and people, people were saying, well, what is it? Like a, so you're doing a web series? And I was like, no, it's going to be on your like, high-def TV. It'll look it's like a real show. It's going to look big, expensive, like Game of Thrones. I don't know, and- Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, and they and so they uh, it wound up working great. It was amazing, like to just drop it on the public and everybody watches it, and people loved it. It wound up being a huge, huge hit for them. And so we got a second season, and we we wanted to make it better and tighter, and so we tightened the second season to ten episodes. But in the first in the first season, we did like a really insane wolf transformation, um, and because we're shooting, we're kind of lump, airing all the episodes at once. 
you know, you're shooting an episode, an entire episode in eight days. So like a transformation, Jesus, it's hard. Like if you need a big piece of a scene, you can kind of get it when you're shooting episode seven. Like okay, let's get the wolf's eyeball falls out. But I wanted like a wolf bursting out of someone, and then they eat their own skin and eat the placenta after, and really, really make it sick. And then I, I basically my pitch to Netflix was I want a show where if you're really in high school and you're you had the power, you were like gonna be a vampire, you had cravings for blood, but you didn't know it yet. But you could hypnotize anyone when the hot cheerleader went to the bathroom. You'd go follow her and hypnotize her and go down on her. And they were like, great, can you come up with anything sicker? So like, we did that. And then for season two, they're like, we love that, like, that scene in the bathroom, the transformation. We want that. So I was like, okay, well, what if we did this? this? And they were super – like they pushed us to just come up with weirder – they're like, we want a show that looks like where people go, there's nothing else like this. And now we're in this great golden age of horror television. I feel like horror TV now – is where movies were in 2003, when we had that great year. started with House of Thousand Corpses, 28 Days Later, Cabin Fever, Freddy vs. Jason, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Dawn of the Dead. It was like an amazing renaissance. The Descent, um, High Tension. But there's, uh, you know, there's so many great shows on now, but Netflix has been... It's, it's like the show just went on live at 12.01 a.m. on Friday, and nine hours later, there were people that had watched every single episode. Like, when's season three? When's season three? Uh, so I know, and then that's the only problem is that when you, when you binge watch, then you're like, God, I gotta fucking wait another year. Like, well, that's what happens when you eat it all at once. Binge. You know? like, but it is, like, it is like a Papa John's pizza that shows up. You're, you're not thinking like, <laughs> oh, what's the... Like, it's like, oh, hot pizza. Like, yeah. it just shows you, like, mm, all the slice, mm, yeah. tasty pizza. Mm, me want another. Mmm, yeah. three more. What and you're do? like, well, it's right there. Uh, and next you're like, uh, exactly. You're like, well, seven episodes in going, oh, I have But diarrhea. it is like, you know, like, like, like cable and, and, and Netflix have, have really, seems like they've become the kind of new, not, I mean, not indie film, but just that, they, and I think maybe, maybe technology helped a lot and effects. For sure. And, because yeah, like, now you can stream it in 4K. Like, that's the next yeah. wave. It's like, they want us to shoot our shows now in 4K. Like, in crazy high definition, people's home theaters look like movies. Like, you can actually have a very, High quality cinematic looking show that's not like the te- it's some weird the it's almost like the medium of film and television they haven't completely merged but we have this great in between mm-hmm. of you know networks like this that can do these uh you know these amazing shows with the well, cinematic guy, but, and then also and like you you know like you need a guy like Nicotero who the best can do an effect that you can shoot close up yep instead yeah. of you know like yeah the zombies will be over really there far away just kind of stumble like you you know that you can that you actually that we have the ability and we have people who understand how to mix practical and digital effects. Yeah, this guy in, in Todd Masters came in for season two. He was, uh, we came be on season one and they got, Greg was directing Walking Dead and they got busy on other shows and this guy Todd Masters came in and really just wanted to outdo, we, everybody's goal was to outdo everything we did on season one. Seems right. to work. Like one scene, he has the Bill Skarsgård biting into someone's neck and he, sh- I just watching this fire hydrant of blood shoot out of this girl's neck. It's like a, it's a hallucination sequence. So he just was like, it wasn't ending. It was like more blood than I spilled in both hostile movies. And <laughs> fucking sets filling up with blood. But it was fun. It was great that Netflix was totally like, you, this was, uh, people have been asking me really since Hostel to do horror TV and I just had no interest in it because I thought, well, all the good stuff's going to get taken out and now they just want you to throw in more. It's fun. Oh, it's so great. It's I mean, cool. It's a, and, and the idea of, uh, you know, I keep... Th- that idea of like, oh, well, let's just make... I mean, Cabin Fever was made for like a 1.5 or something yeah. like that. It was like you had, there was... And it made a shit ton of money. Like, well, why, don't, why don't more people... And, and when, we were, when we were acquired by Legendary, I was like, why don't we just try to make like cool, you know, $2 million films? And, and then it seems like, oh, well, the business of it is a lot more complicated than that. 
because then you have to market it, and then you like what what starts out as seemingly a two million dollar film is actually like a ten or fifteen million dollar film once you actually do all the stuff. Is it still? Do you agree with that, or do you think no? You can make a you know you can make a bunch of in, inexpensive movies, and maybe one of them will pop. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look at you know the Purge with the sequels coming out. The first Purge was a three million dollar movie, and it opened at thirty four million. And I think that Jason Blum has done a really good job. All those paranormal activities they don't they don't do them for more than three or four million dollars. And those aren't documentaries. Them. I thought they just found all that footage. They found camera. everything. I know. Yeah. Well, that's how much they paid for the footage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's they, how much found, they, paid they found the a camera. They at paid a, Toby at a, at a yard to sale. not sell. And that's all it was. Bobcat Goldthwait always wanted to do a docu- or like a, a short on the guy that finds the footage and says like it's like this is so crazy. I better edit this together and then present yeah. it to the public. Just to- <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, is there anything else you want to promote? While you're- I mean, we got Green Inferno, uh, my uh, cannibal movie, September fifth, coming out from Open Road Films. Which I'm you're very a busy man, about. Eli. Yeah, Ruff. it's really fun, and there's. We created a video game. Nobody knows this. It's top secret. And it's going to go on July 20th on the, on the Apple Store. It's called The Green Inferno. It's an iPad, iPhone, Android, all-format game nice. called The Green Inferno Survive. It's totally nuts. It's really fun. It's done. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a Green Inferno video game because I thought, why not? I got, I got to say, I uh, really, 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 really enjoyed uh, uh, The Last Exorcism. Oh, thank oh, you. It was so good. That was fun. It was a yeah. great, great project to be a part of yeah. Daniel Sam the director did an awesome job yeah that, that main guy too the guy Patrick Fabian it was amazing insane. performance yeah. from him yeah, yeah it was cool Ashley Bell got spirit nomination it was great it was great how that movie broke through and even though I knew the ending would divide people and people were either going to love it or hate it it kind of people looked at it like it was really nice to see the actors get recognized and directing recognized because yeah. that was another movie we did for you know like 1.6 million dollars and yeah. just totally shot I mean it was they were in a just in this farmhouse making this crazy movie about What's your favorite part of it? What's your favorite part of the process? I don't know. I hate writing, but if I don't write it, I hate it even more. Uh, Shooting the movie is the most fun. It's like this crazy adrenaline rush. But do you know what I love more than anything is the sound mix. The sound mix is when you finally, the whole thing that you've done all whatever bullshit the actors put you through, all the problems you had in editing, you're like, fuck, this is never going to work. This doesn't make any sense. What did I do? I fucked this up. It's all going to fall apart. <laughs> like, you've gotten through all of that. And once, once the sound effects and the dialogue's there, it finally sounds like a real movie. It doesn't sound like some rough student project. And when the score is there and you're on the mixing station, they just start to blend it together for the first time. It's like you just breathe this fucking sigh of relief, going, "Oh my god, this was worth it!" And you, like, it's going to work. It's going to work. And even when then they can start to play some finished picture, and you're just like, "Yeah, like I can't wait for an audience to see this." Like, and then people go, "Wow, the movie's so much better now." And you're like, "Ah, oh, no, that's this is what I had with the whole time. Like, this is what it was supposed to be." Like. You're sitting there in the sound mix. There's nothing you can do. You can just like check your email. You're on Twitter. You're like, hey, nice I'm room. and the mixers are just like focusing. And I'm pretty much I'm a very like detail oriented person. Like I love all the details and the sound effects. I'm like, okay, give me that cricket and that blood crunch. And I want to hear a okay. If I know if you take a baseball bat on a dead chicken, it's a really good wet punch sound and broccoli snap mixed with that is like a good crunch. To, like I know all the the gore the gore yeah. sounds that I want. It's really. I was like, okay, I know for the leg shaving, I want like a shovel scraping sideways on a sheet of black ice or like in a driveway, like, like horrible, you know, you can give them a frame of reference. Are you trying to stump them? 
Yeah, well, I, I try to inspire them. Like the sound people, like they had 17 different chainsaws before we get the right one on Hostel. It's a North Alaskan reindeer hoof dragging across yep. a box of they jujubes. Love it. They love it. The sound people are so into it. When you give them like very, very, very specific direction and sound references, they're like, yeah, we, because they want to come up with new sounds too. You know, they've done, they're used to directors going, yeah, just fill it in. And so when you have someone that like wants to get really creative with sound, like you can in horror, like in Green Inferno, like biting the flesh and crunching the bones oh, and I mean, it was great and that movie was insane we shot that that's a movie we shot in the Amazon in a village with people that had never they no there's no electricity no running water they're so cut off from civilization it took five hours of travel to get to and from the village every day that it was literally where Werner Herzog had shot Aguirre the Wrath of God we went like about half an hour yeah. farther just so we could say I went beyond Herzog <laughs> and the village and I was like can we I found this village just getting on a boat and going up the Amazon did you hold up your iPad and go I am your God <laughs> well we, we, we went and we said can we can we shoot here and they said well first we're going to have to explain to them what a movie is and so the, the producers went back with a generator and a television, and they showed the whole village Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> and so they were like, great news. We got the village. I was like, what? They're like, yeah, we showed them Cannibal Holocaust. I was like, wait, what are you talking? I was like, I thought you guys were going to start with like Wizard of Oz yeah, or yeah. Star Wars or E.T. They're like, nope, Cannibal Holocaust. The whole village thought it was a comedy. They thought it was hilarious. <laughs> they never, these are five-year-old children that have never experienced a television before are watching like dicks being sliced off and they thought it was, they thought it was hilarious. So if you go to the five-year-old kid in this village in Peru and you say, tell me, explain to me what a movie is. They're like, oh, that's where you pretend to eat other people. And they all signed, everyone in the village signed up to be in the movie. They're like, this sounds like, this sounds like fun. So we, we went there with video cameras and like we did like rehearsals to see who could take direction and I had ADs that went in and like the, the half of the village spoke Quechua and half the village spoke Spanish and so we would speak to them in Spanish and Quechua and Fuck. kind of weeded out like that we cast all of them as the actors in the movie. They, they worked building the sets like helping like they loved it. They got, everyone got so into we did costumes for all of them. We made up everybody and like our, our production designer Marici went there like three weeks early and she built she kind of like took away any sort of modern looking architecture or wood and built the cage where the Americans are going to get taken these, these students protesters that are trying to save the Amazon get taken to this village by the people they save who think they're the invaders and and, the, and the, this production designer had such a great experience, but she had to go back to Santiago, Chile to finish the rest of the sets. And the village came out, and they're like, we have a gift for you. And she's like, what? And they handed her a three-year-old boy. No. Oh, and she's shit. like, I'm Not like, even wrapped? Not even wrapped. And she's like, a little bow in his hand. And they're like, um, what is this? They're like, it's our gift to you. And she's like, I, I like live with my boyfriend. I'm like 32. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Why can't the boy live here? They're like, no, we want to give you something. And she had to decline a baby without offending the village. How do you the, do that? I don't know. She somehow managed to be like, I, I, I don't know, but you'll always be my son. I'll come back and visit. You know, you have to give some sort of very tactful. You don't want to let the you don't want to let the kid you know let the kid down. You know that. Um, you know what you do in that situation? Regift. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the way, yeah. Yeah. Amen. But I got, got you. Yeah. But look what I, exactly, Eli. Look who we got you for the movie. <laughs> sure. Here's a rap gift. Um, but we, but it was amazing, you know, because the whole village, like, we have this opening sequence. I really wanted to look like Apocalypse Now, like, like you're arriving in Colonel Kurtz's village. These American students, they're playing crashes on their way home, and they're darted, and they wake up, and they're 
tied up in these wooden canoes and they're like you know trees that have been carved out and these it they're supposed to look like uncontacted man like and we took the look straight out of national geographic from venezuela brazil peru like real tribal looks in the 60s and 70s and kind of created our own tribe but so these all the natives are painted and the mo howard haircuts and everything <laughs> and like we got kane b is down there with us we had to, took us forever to get the body parts through peruvian customs because apparently we're the first horror movie that shot there then apparently getting bo- shipping body parts is an actual issue in peru oh, so we had to like convince them they were fake like this is the, we're the first movie that did this so we're farther than cameras have gone we get the body parts up there and like heads on pikes and dead bodies and and all the americans are in canoes and like hundreds of villagers with the spears and the knives and and just as we're about to start shooting it's like our first day the first scene i've like built up everything i got this great sequence and these like two pontoon boats pull up and people start like playing music and songs about jesus i was like what the fuck's going on and they're like it was missionaries from a super church in texas Christian missionaries showed up in the village to convert the village to Christianity. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? And they're like, and they see the heads on the spikes and the dead bodies and the students tied up and the people painted red. And they're like, the devil is here. Like, this is it. Like, we found the mouth of hell. And I was like, of course, running to grab my camera to film this for behind the scenes because it's way more interesting than anything. And they were like, the Peruvians had told me back, like, no, 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 like, this is a serious issue. Like, we got to let the village handle this. So the village had to go out and tell them to fuck, fuck off. Like, Whoa. basically, like, Eli Roth is here shooting a movie. And they were like, what? Like, the Texans <laughs> knew it. I got a lot more stories about uh, Inferno. Plenty more. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast? It feels like... It's fun. I like it. I have a, this app called The Crypt, which is, like, horror people making shorts and doing things. Yeah, I, really, I use it. It's cool. It's really yeah, it's great. Like, people post stuff. Yeah, it's a lot yeah. of fun. So if you're, like, a horror fan and you have short-form stuff... It's really cool, but I thought about doing a podcast. It's just I've just been kind of busy, but I love it. I love talking and telling stories. But you're, you know, it's I'll come back here anytime. It's my pleasure. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, the end. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop popcorn. Imagine this: perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.